Assalamualaikum everybody. I'm super excited to um, introduce or welcome you to the first Tuesday session. So this is going to be very interesting. As we said, it's going to get really intense. And so we were already feeling it because it's like as soon as we're done with one, trying to start getting ready for another. Um, the students here also have a pre-Halakha session. So that means that last night we met for also another two, three hours in preparation for today. So that's the piece where they um, get a chance to think about the questions, the methodology, you know, how to approach the text. Um, and then we will cover, you know, a lot more here in the session today. So just to let you know that there's so much learning that, that goes on, it's continuous and um, it's a real immersion, which is just amazing. Um, I just, I don't wanna say too much, but I just wanted to share that from the last Saturday, um, Halakha, one of the greatest gifts that I always have is hearing from people and when they hear something that really touches their heart or strikes a chord or addresses something that they're um, thinking about or dealing with um, at, at the moment in time. And this morning <clears throat> I woke up and I got this really beautiful email from someone who heard my talk on, um, on Saturday and my invitation to Heritage Muslims to join me in being a convert. And um, she said that she felt like God was speaking to her through my talk, and she felt like she'd been wanting to reach out to me for a while, but that, that she had prayed in the last week that, um, like, with all of her heart and with all of her sincerity, <clears throat> that God would allow her to connect more with God. And then she heard my talk and felt like this was the time then to reach out to me, um, and that she really wanted to be a convert but didn't really know where to start. Um, and just to ask for some advice and that, you know, it's like um, she shared with me a lot of stories of growing up and what it was like as an ethnic Muslim and what Islam represented, which was a lot more of a cultural, like what they ate, how they acted, you know, and how she was taught Quran by a scary old woman who used to pinch her by the ears um, every time she made a mistake. And, you know, how there were just so many negative associations with Islam, but that she is really wanting to learn Islam in a very beautiful new way. So I, um, you know, and she said, I, I'm easily overwhelmed, so I can't be reading, you know, lots of surahs and all of these kinds of things, and I, I really understand that. Um, so I just, I advised her to start with the idea of God is your friend, and um, to imagine, like, the love that she felt for her children, and how, um, how you just want to gift your children everything, um, love, beauty, um, liberation, empowerment, joy, um, and that that is... Um, a beautiful place to start thinking about what God wants for us and associating God with beautiful qualities and love and um, and mercy and light and that God just wants us to um, be our beautiful best selves and that that is such a, a you know paradigm shift for people who grew up um, with very cultural associations of, of um, Islam and that it's important to try your very best to kind of let go of everything that you think you know about Islam and just start over and to feel free to ask any question that you want because I know when in my early days as a Muslim I felt stifled every time I wanted to ask you know a genuine question about something I didn't understand and the way that Muslims reacted to me just communicated again and again that there was no place for questions that you needed to just accept what, what you were being told and that is a very oppressive feeling. And so I think a part of reclaiming your relationship with God and Islam and becoming a convert is feeling that, you know, this, there's nothing more important than your faith and nothing is off limits and that you should feel um, free to ask any question that you want. 
And um, we certainly encourage that here and try to um, ask, you know, open um, the floor for anything that, you know, anything that your heart wants to know. So <clears throat> anyway, just again, um, just to say thank you, um, you know, I, I hope that other people will take me up on my invitation to become a convert. Um, it's, a, it's a lonely journey, but there's no more fulfilling journey, and I would never have traded any of the horrible experiences I've gone through um, to arrive at where I am today because, um, you know, the liberation and <clears throat> the freedom, the empowerment, um, just the, the sheer peace and joy um, is worth all of the difficulty along the road. So that's all I, I wanted to share. And, um, and I hope, inshallah, that we have a wonderful session tonight. Thank you for joining us. Tuesday nights are hard for people to join, so may Allah bless you for the extra effort. And, um, and then hopefully we will see you on Saturday. So we're, I think we're going to stop now and, and just pray Maghrib, since um, here where we are, Maghrib is over in less than an hour. So just we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back. Okay? All right. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يلقى قولي. So inshallah tonight my my hope my plan is to do it with two surahs المدثر and المزمل because of the relationship that these two surahs have with each other. Um, I'll try my best to, to, to do that without short-changing the, the surahs because that would be quite unfortunate. Um, may, may Allah aid us and, uh, and that we can in fact cover these two without going uh, too long. And while doing justice to both. And Muddathir which is Is that right? Seventy-four. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, now there is. We are. It, it's sort of. A, it's an awe-inspiring moment, because we are dealing with the very beginning of the revelation, and it is important to remember this and to keep in mind that this is the moment where humanity is being introduced to the Qur'an and the very first impact 
that the Quran has upon its receivers and what is the groundwork that is being laid out and the foundations that are being laid out for the rest of the Muhammadian message and so it, it, it it's uh, it's um, as we will see it, it is very important to keep in mind that this is the genesis and the point of birth now there is a debate that we find in the tradition what was the first revelation of the Quran um, many sources or there are many reports that say that the first revelation was from Surah Al-Alaq and some sources even say that Iqra or Surah Al-Alaq and Surah Al-Qalam both was Al-Qalam wa ma yasturun both were revealed before Al-Muddassir and Al-Muzammir so if that is true then Al-Muddassir and Al-Muzammir would be number three and four in the order of revelation uh, obviously if only Al-Alaq was revealed before Al-Muddassir and Al-Muzammir, then it would be number um, two and three in the order of revelation. However, we have a considerable amount of reports that say that no, in fact, Al-Muddassir was the very first revelation. Um, and I don't think there's any way to resolve this debate, but what we can, what we can what it tells us is that we, when we deal with these two surahs, al-Muddassir and al-Muzammil, uh, we are talking about the very beginning of the revelation, whether it was the first or the second revelation or the third revelation, and so on. So the opening of al-Muddassir has in um among the, in, in Muslim culture um, a certain lore and a certain fame to it I'm just trying to find the, the translation um. and so that the the narrative, that we have in the tradition with al-Muddathir is that the, the Prophet والسلام, uh, is either in Ghar Hira or close to Ghar Hira. Uh, there are other reports that um, give us slightly variant locations, but that he witnesses the angel Jibreel and upon witnessing the angel Jibreel, the experience is so overwhelming that he rushes home and he tells Khadija, his wife, 
the Thirini, the Thirini, cover me. And that she starts wrapping him up and he is sweating profusely. And so when the first, when this revelation comes, when it says, Ya Ayyuhal Muddathir, it is a reference to the fact that he is wrapped, out, wrapped up in garments. And it tells them, you in garments, you who is garmented, so to speak, uh, wrapped up in garments, uh, rise and warn. Uh, rise and warn. It is noteworthy that Surat al-Muzammil has a very similar start. Al-Muzammil is also someone who is wrapped up. We have um, a uh, a report of contested authenticity that says that the prophet was uh, there was a garment that was long and that part of the garment covered Khadija and the rest of the garment the prophet had wrapped up around him and Khadija was sleeping and that he was awake praying with this garment. Uh, praying in this context means basically dhikr, uh, supplicating God in some form because prayer had not been revealed yet. Salah as we know it now had not been revealed yet. And that um, the Ya Ayyuhan Muzammil when it says you who are wrapped up in garments as a reference to that occasion. But there are problems with this, uh, transmission problems with this report. So what is noteworthy is that these two surahs begin with a reference to someone who is wrapped up. Either Muddathir or Mudzammil. Why is this significant? Because if you are reflecting on this a little bit and you say to yourself, wait, so did the Prophet um, wrap up himself so often that you have two revelations that tell them, oh, you who is wrapped up, um, and is it that Khadija would wrap him up frequently? The reason I mention this is that, of course, you know, you guys might not follow the the poison that Islamophobes put out, but. You remember I told you about this uh, uh, TV station in uh, Greece that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, does nothing but attack Islam. Uh, of course, they, they picked up on this and, you know, they, they tried to present the, the character of the Prophet, alayhi as somewhat as, as um, 
unstable or weak because why why else would he be constantly wrapped up um, in the desert in Arabia who would always be in a wrapped up state if um, they weren't emotionally unstable and remarkably um, because Muslims have a very flimsy connection to their tradition there are some Muslims who found this to be troubling. Of course, what the Islamophobes, whether knowingly or unknowingly, leave out, and what these Muslims don't know, is that this issue was debated in the Islamic tradition and discussed at length. And in fact, the reference to al-Muddathir and al-Muzammil is not just a reference to um, is not just a reference to someone who is wrapped up in garments is not just a reference to someone who is wrapped up in garments because in Arabic usage, referring to someone, you could refer to someone who is in fact covered up with something and you, you instead of calling them by your name, their name, you call them by the act they're engaged in. So if someone is studying and you say, oh, you who is studying, or if someone is sleeping, oh, you who is sleeping. And you do that usually when you want to um, be friendly towards someone. So it is possible that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is approaching the Prophet kindly and referring to, this, to, to the physical condition he's in. But there's also another possibility, and that is in Arabic usage, the state of Zamala and the state of Dathara is a state that could refer to one's consciousness. So when we look, for instance, to Ya ayyuhal muddathir So uh, just uh, among the reports that you find in the tradition Ya ayyuhal muddathir bi means someone who's wrapped up in garments Ya another perspective Ya ayyuhal katim li nubuwati So al muddathir could refer here to the fact that you are a person who is a prophet and your cover is that, that you have to shut off is acknowledgement of the fact that you're a prophet and embracing the task. Ya ayyuhal muddathir that those that you have an awareness or a consciousness or a knowledge that you are not sharing with others. So you, you take off your cover and you share the ilm um, that knowledge. Um, 
So, for instance, um, there is a hadith that says, يحشر المرء في ثوبيه اللذين مات فيها A human being will be reincarnated in the hereafter in their thawb that they died in. And of course the, the literalist reading this said, well, you in the final day you will be born, you will be resurrect wearing the clothes that you were wearing. But most theologians, including for instance Al-Ghazali and nearly everyone else that said, no, it means here that you will be resurrected in your thawb, means you will be resurrected in the moral state that you died in. And in Arabic usage, that's, that's regular, that's common. So why am I pausing at this? Because... Two surahs, when it talks to the Prophet and says, cast off the covers, cast off the delusions, cast off the excuses, cast off the state that you are in because you have very important work to do. And you have a very important truth to bring forth. And with this understanding, then it is hardly surprising that we have two surahs. Uh, um, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Prophet to rise to the occasion. But you're not going to be able to rise to the occasion if you are holding on to your anxieties, to your fears, to your hesitations, to your excuses, whatever they are. It is a new state of being. And as we see, we'll see, it is a state of purification and diligence that opens up a new chapter. There is immediately a question that comes up in this context then. Well, this is Allah talking to the Prophet. This is Allah talking to the Prophet. Is this communication applicable to anyone other than the Prophet? So, if God is telling to the Prophet, Ya ayyuhal muddassir, Ya ayyuhal muzammil, is God speaking to us and telling us to cast off our delusions, our garments, and rise? And in, in the, I'm going to say it in Arabic, then I'll, I'll translate it. Um, In, um, in, in, what is the word, in philology or in, in, the, in the science of the language, uh, 
we say الاسم المشتق من الفعل يشترك فيه مع المخاطب كل من عمل كل من عمل بذلك العمل وانتصف بتلك اتصف بتلك الصفة. So if what this basically says is that the rule of Arabic usage or rule of linguistic usage is that anyone who finds themselves in a similar situation to the Prophet ﷺ, that command, that Quranic command applies to them as well. There is a discussion in the tradition that I'll just quickly tell you about. Um, where Muslim, this is especially in jurisprudence more than theology. Um, Muslim jurists in juristic works, as opposed to their theological works, uh, have a discussion as to whether when Allah addresses the Prophet, what Allah tells the Prophet is applicable in equal measure to other human beings. And here is just a quick rundown. Um, that the Hanbalis and the Hanafis and the Malikis uh, says, said that God's discourse to the Muddammil and the Muddathir is applicable to all Muslims. This is the Hanbalis, Hanafis, and Malikis, without any further additional evidence. Shafi's said, no, it's not applicable to all Muslims unless there is further evidence that would make the discourse applicable to Muslims. Um, and then there, there is a long debate among the Shafi's and Hanafis as to when, when Allah talks to the Prophet, it can be, but for our purposes, I just want you to know that there, that there is that discourse. But for our purposes, it is fair to say that the rule of logic and the rule of language is applicable, that it applies to all of us. We exist with veils upon us. These veils are like the garments we wrap ourselves in. They give us a false sense of safety, a false sense of security. And I mean, the garments that she, that Khadija reportedly wrapped the Prophet in is not going to protect him, not going to provide anything. Uh, we, we exist with our security blankets. But if you want to rise to the occasion of this revelation, this Islam that is now being revealed to humanity, you are going to need to take off the veils. Interestingly, some theologians said that this is the theologians that in, in, in some of the, I mean, this is an extinct um, legal perspective. 
those who said that a, a, anyone born Muslim um, upon reaching maturity must shahada that they must be asked to decide whether they want to remain Muslim or not. It's a it's a point of view that that became extinct with with the centuries. Um, relied on that logic that we exist whether we are born Muslim or not wrapping ourselves with all types of garments like al-mudzammir, like al-mudathir but to rise to the occasion of our Islamness, our belief it requires an affirmative action of consciousness where you embrace the burdens of this message and the burdens of your conviction. And for these theologians, um, one cannot just be assumed to have embraced these convictions just by virtue of the fact that they were born. There is a very nice um, passage I once read, and I, I couldn't. I, I found someone quoting it, so I was happy about that. Um, I once read in the tafsir by a scholar called Ismail Haqqi. Um, uh, and uh, Ismail Haqqi's uh, tafsir is very interesting because it's sort of, uh, you can't really understand it unless you can read Persian because he, he, he writes it in Arabic and then he explains all these like little subtleties in, in Persian, classical Persian. Um, very interesting to see. Anyway, so Ismail Haqqi um, says in the context of his commentary on Ya'yu um, al-Muddassir that at one point he, when he visited Mecca, he was at the Haram al-Nabawi um, and فَحَصَلَ لِيَ اِطْرَابَ عَظِيمُ وَحِيرَ كُبْرَى مِنْ سَطْوَةِ الْخِطَابِ الْإِلَهِ وَغَلَبْنِي الْإِرْتِعَادُ وَظَنَنْتُ أَنِّي مَأْمُورُ بِالْإِنْذَارِ الظَّاهِرِ فِي ذَلِكَ الْمَقَامِ لِمَا أَنَّ أَكْثَرِ النَّاسِ كَانُوا يُسُبْئُونَ الْأَدَبِ فِي ذِلْكَ فِي ذَلِكَ الْحَرَمِ so he is at the Haram and he remembered Ya Ayyuh al-Muddathir and he became extremely stressed out because he noticed that a lot of the people around him visiting the Haram were acting in ways that according to him were very impolite towards the sanctity of the Haram. They were probably uh, talking and eating and maybe 
you know, uh, um, polluting the place with garbage or whatever. He doesn't explain other than the fact that they were not very polite. And he thought, when, when he thought of Al-Muddasar, he thought, you know, I have an obligation to shed off my fear and my embarrassment and to rise up and to confront them and to tell them to stop doing what they're doing. But he knew that he's also greatly outnumbered and that he's probably going to end up beating up, um, especially he lived a few centuries ago. So he says, um, that to the, it got to the point that he started crying really hard uh, because of just the, the being overwhelmed by the situation. And then he goes on that, um, um, that he, he looked at these people and, and read them and saw that they are blind and, and deaf and that they, they don't seem to, they're there at the haram but they're, they don't understand what the haram is about. And then he received an inspiration, Ismail Haqqi says, that the command to Ya Ayyuhal Muddathir, Qum, Fa'anzir, rise up and warn, is first and foremost not about warning other people, but about warning himself and reforming himself. And that when he remembered that, and he remembered how much of himself he needs to work on, it calmed him down because it kept him very busy. You know, he said, I, I have a lot of work to do about all my faults. Um, leave a, you know, I am just preoccupied with the faults of others because I want to escape confronting my own faults. You find... Again, I you know I try in in these halakas to bring out what is what has been neglected in our tradition and how it has been ignored in our tradition, and to try to restore the 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 spirit of the soar. Um, and it's quite remarkable because Ya'ayyuhan Muddasir was not just a little nice story we taught our children about how the Prophet saw an angel, got scared, and then his wife comforted him, and then he got courage. It was actually about a spiritual journey. And for centuries in the Islamic tradition, Ya'ayyuhan Muddasir and Ya'ayyuhan Muzammil, as we will see, um, were two surahs that tell you the beginning of the journey. How should the beginning of the journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be? And the beginning of the journey is that you are the muddathir. And you have to rise. 
But you have to rise not to go around uh, giving instructions to people and engage in a power trip with people. But first you start with yourself. And the first indar, the first duty, an obligation to educate and to teach is directed towards the self. Because as one of the 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 greatest, probably one of the greatest Quranic commentators that ever lived, um, although in, in the Sunni world he's often ignored, a scholar known as a Qashani, not a Kashani. There is a Kashani, uh, but there is also Qashani with the Qaf. Uh, Qashani had perceptions or insights in the Quran that were truly amazing. Like what are the, like like Al-Qashani, the premises of everything, the foundations of the entire journey with Islam begins with Qum Fa'anzir Nafsak. Rise and direct your gaze towards the self. If you're unable to do that, the rest is going to be necessarily flawed. Okay, so, Ya Ayyuhal Muddathir, Qum Fa'anzir, rise and mourn. Because our ancestors used to take the Quran far more seriously than we do, you find in the tradition a long discussion about why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would say, Qum Fa'anzir, rise and mourn. Because Allah elsewhere in the Quran describes the Prophet as Nadir wa Bashir, as a warner and a bringer of good news. So why here would Allah say to the Prophet, Qum fa'anzir, rise and warn, and not say, Qum fa'bashir wa'anzir, or anzir wa bashir, so rise and warn and bring good news. And there are various explanations uh, uh, suggested for this among them, or the most uh, prominent of them, which was suggested by one of the students actually yesterday, was that um, first, in the journey towards the self, you can't start by telling yourself the good news. If you do, you will be exactly like the delusional piety of the followers of Jesus Christ, who say, oh, the good news died for our sins, and you know, you find a lot of people who go to church live with their boyfriends and girlfriends, and you know, you wonder what happened, if they ever read the New Testament. I mean, I often actually, in dealing with Christians, wonder if they actually ever read the Old, well, the New Testament, but leave alone the Old Testament, which I'm sure the vast majority of pious Christians have never read. 
But even the New Testament, I mean, they seem to read just selections that the, the church gives them. But actually, they don't read the actual text. Because if they did, they would find a lot of what they do quite problematic. Um, including the bizarre practice of, for instance, you know, going to church and revealing clothes. Or going to church, like, uh, short skirts. And going to church... Uh, with boyfriends and girlfriends, and uh, it's very bizarre because it's it, it's it, it's contradicted by the text of the New Testament itself. But anyway, so some have said that if the if 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 the beginning of piety is to simply seek comfort, then what you are actually comforting is your ego and your ego will never demand that you do hard work and that the beginning of piety must be to confront yourself with the dangers with the risks before you start thinking about the rewards other perspective which is not necessarily mutually exclusive, was that in the Arabic language, in dhar, like when you use the male form, you could also mean the, the female form. So if I say anta, I could actually refer to either men or women. Um, when I use the female form, I'm being more specific because for a reason. When... when I have a reason to want to specify the female gender, then I would use the female form, but the male form could refer to both. That similarly in the Arabic language, that when you use the word indhar, which is worn, could, it could also mean big, bring good tidings. So the word indhar itself could refer to bad news and good news. Um, I tend to be from the first school of thought, um, to be quite honest, I tend to believe that the journey, if you want to cast your, um, if you want to cast your veils and could confront the self, as a Qashani says that you, and Ismail Haqqi says that your, your, the journey has to begin with, against the self, not against others. Um, that uh, it's very dangerous to spoil yourself with everything it wants to hear. Because it becomes self-entitled and arrogant and conceited and it treats other human beings like garbage. I mean, you want to be an Islamically decent human being? Uh, you, you have to do it the right way. And the right way is to confront yourself with all the things that are bad news. That makes being, taking the Islamic route hard, yes. But as the Quran itself says, in the, we, we are going to give you a, 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 a heavy charge, a heavy job. This is not easy. This is not child's play. This is not just fooling around. Okay. يا أيها المدثر قم فأنذر وربك فكبر 
وثيابك فطاهر نوت وربك فكبر so the third after rise warn again in in this in, in the sake of 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 re reintroducing ourselves to our tradition um there are a lot written in the islamic tradition about how demons um fear and absolutely hate the proclamation allahu akbar so i mean in the old tradition you read things like if you want to cleanse your space and chase away demons that the the most powerful thing in your in your in your uh, arsenal is allahu akbar because you're proclaiming god is greater greater than you greater than me greater than everything but other than that there are fascinating discourses in especially in the sufi tradition about the zikr of allahu akbar that among the most powerful zikr is simply to say allahu akbar and that as you repeat allahu akbar again and again and again to yourself in khalwa uh, in isolation preferably that the ego starts melting away and that the ego starts shrinking and as the ego shrinks the space for your faith grows as on there's a very nice quote i'll share with you inshallah um Okay. Now, of course, this is commonly translated as and your garments purify. And again, because our ancestors took the Quran far more seriously than we did, they paused at this expression and your garments purify and pondered and questioned and said well the prophet was known for his cleanliness so it is not likely that the prophet was sleeping in clothes that was impure and it's not likely that he was wearing something dirty the prophet was known for his cleanliness that he would wash his own clothes because he liked his clothes to be washed often and he thought that it would be a burden to keep asking his wife to wash his clothes for him so he would do it himself and but that he would often be seen washing his clothes um so 
Is it just a general reminder intended for all Muslims that, you know, pure, if you're pure physically, that helps your purity spiritually? That, you know, you can't be uh, a, 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 a person that is compartmentalized, like a person who says, well, I can wear dirty clothes, but be spiritually clean. You'll find this this talism, this in, in, it's called, um, this state of um, synchronicity in Islamic theology is very common. That the external and the, the internal have to be consistent with each other. That you you, you know a person that is uh, you can't be kind to the outside but mean to your family, and you can't be kind to your family but mean to the outside. You can't be a liar in one context and a true speaker in another context. It's it's a, the, 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 you have to have a state of balance, and that extends to the whole discussion about cleanliness. And this is by by the way why the Muslim civilization, you know, made headways in personal hygiene um, to the point that. When Andalusia was conquered, uh, the the conquerors of Andalusia were puzzled by, you know, they thought all the bathhouses and all the toilets must have been an invitation for homosexual homosexual activity, because they thought, you know, no one needs to bathe so much. No, no one needs. I mean, these people must be just engaging in orgies. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, Muslims civilizationally were were known for their hygiene standards. But, so, with Yabaka Fatahir, however, goes back to, again, the language. Because I'm trying to see if I can find it. Um, yeah. The, in the Arabic language, thiyab is often used as a kunya for nafs. Um, so, if you wanted to say someone is an honest person, you say, they are Tahiru Thiyab. Tahiru Thiyab didn't mean that their, their clothes were clean. Tahiru uh, Thiyab meant that they had a good soul. Um, so, for instance, well, there are many examples, but I don't want to. Um, um, Or even when we say to someone, فَشَمِّرْ عَنْ ثِيَابَكَ When we say to someone, roll up, well actually we have the expression, roll up your sleeve in English. Mm. Well in Arabic you say, شَمِّرْ عَنْ ثِيَابَكَ It doesn't mean, you know, we don't really care what you do with your clothes. It means, get to work, you know, 
put in energy. So you have these fascinating conversations about in the tradition that wathiyabak of atahir is an illusion to engage in self-purification. Now you cannot undertake the mission that is being given to you without diligent and consistent purification. We have a similar discussion with Warush Safahjur. Let me see how this guy translated Warush Safahjur. Um, and keep away from Arush, he wrote the idols. Oh, okay. The, why is this interesting? Because in Arabic usage, Arush with Dhammara, Ru, Rujs, means idols. Warrijs, because of the Ra, Ra, Arrijs, means sins or evil deeds. And we have both Qira'as in, in the Quran. There have been reports that said that it is Rujs, and there are reports that said, no, it is Rijs. But in both situations, again, Muslim theologians paused. Why did they pause? Because they said, well, we know that the Prophet never worshipped idols. Not once in his life. He was known long before he became a Prophet that he refused to worship idols. And he was also known for his bashfulness and his abstention from sinful conduct. He refused to drink, he refused to go to the bars, he refused the, the, to go to the prostitute houses in Mecca, he refused to gamble, he refused to... And so there is an interesting theological discussion then when Allah says this, what is the risk that Allah is referring to? And to make a long story short, that although most modern English translations say idols, abandoned idols, in fact, the majority of Mufassirun, who are non-literalists, they're literalists, especially those who accepted the Qur'an or Rish, not Warish, but most actually, uh, um, commentators say that read in the context of wathiyabaka fatahir warrishta fahjur means that you purify the self from its failures because when you when directed at the self a doesn't mean drinking alcohol or gambling or, or, or fornicating or whatever, uh, it actually means moral failures like arrogance, conceit, uh, jealousy, all the weaknesses of the human spirit. So, no, this is again, people, this is the beginning of the Islamic message. And so these early Muslims that are going to start learning about what God wants from them are 
receiving a very heavy message indeed. They are going to proclaim that as a principle, God is greater. God is the greatest, with all the implications of that. And they have to engage in self-purification, where they are going to introspectively look into moral failures, which the rest of the Qur'an then will lay out for them. And they get the message that this is very serious business. This is not going to be some joyride or some fad that they are going to engage in. And this is affirmed in the two verses that follow very quickly after that. وَلَا تَمْنُنَّ تَسْتَكْثِرْ وَلَا تَمْنُنَّ تَسْتَكْثِرْ is probably one of the most remarkable expressions. Because in two words, it gave you an entire moral philosophy. The munnatastakhir is an is these two words express an attitude. The attitude is to summarize it as a matter of attitude in your existence. Don't think that you deserve more and don't think that you've done enough. And don't think that you are owed anything. These two words If you knew how much is written about these two words, you want to go this Islamic path, your whole attitude towards life must change. You can't think you're entitled. You can't think you're owed. Um, why don't I have this? Why don't I have that? You can't think if you do good, you're not allowed to say, well, look at all the good I've done. If you do a favor, you're not allowed to say, well, I've done enough. Because this path that you're going to take on is a path that's going to require a lot of patience. And it is going to require a lot of giving and a lot of sacrifice. And if the people who are beginning on this path have that characteristic of man wal istikthar, the characteristic that they count their favors. Well, I've done enough. I've worked hard enough. I've served enough. What is this? When is this going to end? When am I, the sacrifices are, that are demanded of me going to end? I've been giving for I don't know how many years. You know, the stuff that, quite frankly, at this point in my life makes me sick. Because 
I believe that the failure of modern Muslims is because they, they don't observe this, this two words. These just these two words. In two words, an entire philosophy to the Prophet and his followers. And of course, if you think about how much these followers are going to sacrifice, they didn't know as they were, they were receiving this revelation, but we, in hindsight, know how much they sacrificed. It makes perfect sense. وَلِرَبِّكَ فَاصْبِرْ And persevere. Know that this past is going to take a lot of patience, which is, of course, intimately connected with the verse before. I just remember that I, I had written a comment to myself that I, I'm, I'm sorry, I just remember that, that um, in the Arabic language when you, the, sometimes Arabs would refer to hope as thawb walibas and also in the Arabic language um, when you wanted to say someone is truthful and loyal, you say Tahir al-Thiyab, especially uh, truthful and loyal, Sadiq wa Wafi. Okay, anyway. So, there is a little quote from um, Qashani, the, the Quranic commentator that I mentioned to you, um, the, I would like to share with you just so you know, it's it just it, even uh, people who know, even people who really uh, know Arabic well, still don't know their traditions, so it's um, it's a valuable opportunity. If I just I found someone who quoted it. Wait, hold on. If we can find it again. See, this is why books are good because computers are just. Unreliable. Okay. The, um, okay. So this is in the context on commenting on Wali Rabbika Fasbir. So Qashani, I'm, I'm going to read it in Arabic and then uh, explain it. Um, it. Says some some very heavy things. Um, so he says, 
المدثر أي المتلبس بدثار البدن المتحجب بصورته قم عما ركنت إليه وتلبست به من أشغال الطبيعة وانتبه من رقدة الغفلة فانذر نفسك وقواك وجميع من عداك عذاب يوم عظيم وإن كنت تكبر شيئا وتعظم قدره فخصص ربك بالتعظيم والتكبير لا يعظم في عينك غيره وليصغر في قلبك كل من سواه بمشاهدة كبريائه وظاهرك فطهره أولا قبل تطهير باطنك عن مدانس الأخلاق وقبائح الأفعال ومزام العادات ورجز الهيولي المؤدي إلى العذاب فاهجر أجير أجرد باطنك عن اللواحق المادية والهيئات الجسمانية الفاسقة والغواشي الظلمانية والهيلونانية والهيولانية ولا تعطي المال عن تجردك عنه متغرزة طالبة للأعواض والثواب الكثير فإن به فإن ذلك احتجاب بالنعمة عن المنعم وقصور همة بل خالصة لوجه الله افعل ما تفعل صابرة على الفضيلة له لا لشيء آخر غيره What's most interesting about this quote is that Qashani talks about the, the part about with the, with the uh, Ya Ayyuhal Muddaster and says, you know, that you, you shed the garments of your, not just your body but your soul and more importantly and that the purity must be external and internal purity and the internal purity is the hardest and that the part where it gets very thick um, is what eventually moved into the Western civilization and the idea of holograms. Sufis would often talk about reality as a huli reality. You notice the similarity between Huli and Holly, holographic. And Al-Huli means it is a reality that has no inherent truth to it. It is thoroughly constructed. And it is constructed in part by elementary laws but in part by the willpower of human beings. So you're actually shaping that reality through your willpower. And that if the willpower that you put in the world is negative, that the reality being constructed is negative. And if the willpower that you put out in the world is positive, then you get that as, as well. So Qashani is saying to purify the self and to persevere with the self and to cleanse the self so that you are in fact dealing with this world, constructing a reality that is beautific, takes perseverance and a commitment and perseverance that is anchored in the idea of God is the greatest. That you 
everything else, including your own ego, is seen as small in your eyes. And gradually, you see the truth for what it is, and that the only great thing is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. فَإِذَا نُقْرَ فِي النَّقُورِ So when the, 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 the sound of the, the trumpet, the, the, um, uh, the, um, the only thing I want to say about, this is um, number eight. Um, the most translations and most modern Muslims know Nukraf in Naqur as meaning when the trumpet sounds. Um, and this is the, the normally the, the report that was comes through Ibn Abbas and others and so on. But more meaning Ibn Abbas. But um, I should mention that this is not the only understanding of Nukra of Naqur. There are, in, although forgotten in the modern age, Nukra of Naqur could also has been reported to mean that uh, an Naqr is also a heart when. A heart is referred to as a naqr. The expression nukr of in naqur, when a heart is in fear and it starts beating fast, like you know when you're anxious, that's nukr of in naqur. So when your heart starts racing because of the approach of the final day. There is another meaning that um, has also been discussed that a naqur there are some reports attributed to the, to the Prophet that Al-Naqur is your books of accountability. Nukraf Al-Naqur, when the books of accountability are sent forward. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, it could be the trumpet and your heart racing because of the trumpet sounding in the final day coming, and also uh, your books of accountability coming forward. So, I mean, it's deciding between them is not uh, a, a big thing. But it, it is, of course, an illusion to the end of time. So this is going to be a very difficult day. In principle, difficult in principle upon everyone, but the closer you are to Allah, the easier that time is upon you. Uh, I don't want to, to, to scare you, but there are a lot of traditions that say that the 
time for accountability before you actually get the verdict um, that it lasts by Earth time a long time. That by Earth time it lasts for decades. So um, it's not an hour or a few minutes. And uh, the closer you are to Allah, um, you are in, in comfort and in tranquility during that waiting period for judgment. And the further away you, you are from Allah, the more this period of decades, some you know, say, reports say 40 years, some say as much as 100 years, there's even one report that said 300 years, Anyway, that um, the the further away you are from Allah, the harder it is. So, even if Allah forgives your your sins at the end, uh, you know you you've you've got this period that people are going through their 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 trials and their accountabilities and so on. That uh, is pretty. Um, Terrifying. Um, so this is in the context of and the, the difficulty of this day, which is really not a day, but a day in, in God's time. Not a day in our time. That's self especially for the kuffar, that it's going to be quite difficult. And then the surah at this point shifts from that powerful introduction to which is verse 11. Let me deal, or I am going to deal, or leave me alone to deal with that that I've created alone. Now here, it's fascinating because it gave that power, powerful introduction and then it made a sharp turn to... And if you look at most tafsirs, or most uh, translations rather, they say that it's talking about Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira. Why is it talking about Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira? Well, Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, uh, who was, lived at the uh, early on in Mecca, uh, was one of the most not just hostile, but also most viciously unkind to the Prophet والسلام, and um, also to other Muslims. Uh, he has a lot of stories uh, around the Walid. Um, 
and he's interesting because, of course, uh, you know, like one of his sons is Khalid ibn al-Walid, who is one of the, the greatest uh, generals in, in Islam. And um, uh, one other of his sons, another one of his sons also, uh, who became Muslim, um, did great services for Islam. Other sons never converted. Some of his sons converted, some didn't. But Walid, of course, himself, Walid ibn Mughira never converted and uh, died after Uhud or because of Uhud. Uh, sorry, because of Badr, Battle of Badr. So Walid ibn Mughira was also very wealthy and there are very interesting reports about him and uh, is that he was, a, he was a master of the Arabic language that he was especially his expertise was in poetry he had a prodigious memory he remembered he memorized a lot of arabic poetry and apparently would it would as a lot of arabs did but he was especially good at it that he would hear any poem and tell you the meter of that poem and uh, he was among the elite in mecca that selected the seven best poems that were hung around the Kaaba, and that was like a that was their by their day, you know, like we have Miss Universe in America. Well, this was their Miss Poetry, and the Miss Poetry was bigger than our Miss Universe. Um, you know, you select the seven best poems and hang them. It was a very very big deal. And Al Walid and Al Mughira was sort of an interesting character in in in, in a negative way, I guess, because he he. Uh, also, uh, like people to refer to himself as the Wahid, meaning the one and only. And he says, um, um, wait, um, did I read? So he would say, um, أنا الوحيد ابن الوحيد ليس لي في العرب نظير نظير that I am the, the, the one and only the son of the one and only no one is equal to me in the Arabs so a flamboyant guy um, and when he heard the, the Quranic revelation his comment about the Quran and this was heard Surah Iqra and in some reports, I mean Surah Al-Alaq, and in some reports also Surah Al-Qalam, that his comment about the Quran is that it is spectacular, spectacularly beautiful. And he says, we, we can't say Muhammad was a poet, because one, this is not poetry. This is very beautiful, but it's not poetry. And because it's Walid who said that, it was that was pretty much authoritative. Um, and we know that Muhammad, for, he's 40 years old or around 40 years old and he's never, he's not, never wrote, poet, never composed poetry, was not a poet, and we all know he's not a poet. And uh, it is also not uh, what an insane person would say. And it has nothing like what crazy people say, this is too beautiful, too eloquent. 
And also, it has nothing to do with what soothsayers and magicians say. What we talked about before, Rajz al-Kahana or Saj al-Kahana, the, the type of formulaic language that the soothsayers would say in black magic ceremonies and so on. It says, no, it's not it. So when they say, okay, well, what, what, what do we say about him? And they say, well, the only thing that possibly can pass is Isahir, uh, is that he's some form of magic, some form of spell, um, not like soothsayers, but nonetheless some form of magic. And... Um, According to the to the Sira that this um, this judgment by Walid ibn al-Waghira was uh, was used in the propaganda campaign against the Prophet Muhammad, causing him great consternation and causing the early converts to Islam great misery. So then. If that's the case, then these verses are referring to let me deal with that who I've created Wahid. Why does it say Wahid? Well, it's mocking and Walid Mughira's reference to himself as the one and only Al Wahid. So when it says it's using his own language. Okay, again, is it's talking about Walid ibn al-Mughira, and I've given him a lot of wealth. And Walid ibn al-Mughira was extremely rich, was very wealthy. And I've given him many children. And also Walid ibn al-Mughira is reported to have had 10 children or 12 children, and all of them healthy and living, uh, and Arabs, were accustomed to having children, a lot of children die as uh, um, very young, and the, the rate of survival was not very good. But Walid was very blessed in that he, he had uh, his children live. Boys and girls, by the way. And I've given them all the means for success. And he always wants more. And Walid was known for his race to become ever richer. So that fits. So, but in fact, he is an opponent and ungrateful and doesn't acknowledge that Allah has given him all what Allah has given him. Okay. Now you might get a sense from the way I'm telling you this that the reference to Walid ibn Mughira is not the only Quranic narrative. Although, again, I, I've, in, you know, when I've um, attended I mean, Islamic centers and so on. I've never, I've never 
found anyone that mentions anything other than the story of Al-Walid and Al-Muhira. But the amount of literature that tells you that the segue into Dharni wa man khalaqtu wahida is not a reference to Al-Walid ibn Mughira, but a reference to human beings. And let me walk you through this. So I will deal with those who are created, born into this world alone. They come to this world wahid, meaning alone. وَجَعَلْتُ لَهُمْ مَالًا مَمْدُودًا And I give them much wealth and much material gifts. وَبَنِينَ شُهُودًا And I give them generations of children. بَنِينَ شُهُود here doesn't mean a lot of children, but generations of children. وَمَحَكْتُ لَهُ تَمْهِيدًا Again, talking about a human being. And I've given them all the means for survival. But they always covet more. And they always want more. No, but this human being, this prototypical human being, is always stubborn and always ungrateful. Now here is where we, if it's in Walid ibn Mughira, then it's a promise. They tell you that Su'ud is a part of hellfire that is an upward slope that Walid ibn Mughira will be forced to walk and that every time he puts his foot down, his foot will burn. And then every time he lifts his foot, the skin will be restored. The, the problem with this tradition is that it is of dubious authenticity. But Koshani has something very beautiful about Rukushoda, but I didn't note it down, so I'm not going to be able to find it without having you wait a long time. So, anyway, um, Jilani actually re references when Koshani says that Ibn Arabi has a form of it that is not as elaborate as a Koshani statement on Rukushoda uh, that human beings. The order for if it's choice number one, as we said, is that it refers to Walid ibn Mughira. Choice number two, that it doesn't refer to Walid ibn Mughira, but refers to the state of human beings when they refuse to acknowledge their relationship with the divine. And that they struggle for the attainment of a higher status. It's like um, I was telling some of you that I, I watched this um, this crazy documentary by coincidence about uh, steroids in LA. 
and how huge steroids are in LA culture and all these people, huge billions of dollars and a lot of people who go work out and inject themselves with all types of steroids that create enormous medical disasters. But the, the and they were interviewing people on these, in this documentary, like why, why are you spending all this money on these steroids injecting them in your muscles and your bellies and your sides and your thighs and your everything and the number of times that people said well we it, it's natural that we would evolve towards the superhuman this is a, a natural evolutionary step that we would live longer and look better and the mad race to look perfect, LA style. And if you know what LA style look perfect is, it's muscles and tight bodies and no fat and very sexy and all of that. And that it's always cast as a necessary evolutionary step. And subhanAllah, as I'm watching this, and I kept remembering these people because Allah is absent, it is really, it, it very, it, like, they're going to struggle and torture themselves as they keep trying to attain the unattainable dream. I mean, it makes cosmetic surgeons very rich. And I guess whoever makes these steroids very rich. But it's insane. It's crazy. It's... Uh, I mean, can you have a better description of Sa'udah? Um, you are just going to wear yourself to the ground as you try to attain the unattainable. So, إِنَّهُ فَكَّرَ وَقَدَّرْ فَقُتِلَ كَيْفَ قَدَّرْ ثُمَّ قُتِلَ كَيْفَ قَدَّرْ ثُمَّ نَظَرْ ثُمَّ عَبَسَ وَبَسَرْ ثُمَّ أَدْبَرْ وَاسْتَقْبَرْ فَقَالَ إِنَّ هَذَا إِلَّا سَخْرٌ يُؤْتَرْ إِنَّ هَذَا إِلَّا قَوْلُ الْبَشَرْ سَأُصْلِيهِ سَقَرْ وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا سَقَرْ لَا تُبْقِ وَلَا تَذَرْ Okay, so for those, for those who said that it's talking about Walid ibn al-Mughira, it's a perfect description of Walid as he is thinking about what do we say about the Qur'an. The Qur'an is very beautiful, very eloquent. Well, we can't admit that. We have to say it's... So he, he thinks, he ponders. This is verses from um, 17 to um, 25. Yeah, he ponders, he, he grimaces, he thinks, he sways it, and then says, well, okay, so we say it's a form of sorcery. Um, now, and that's self-explanatory, and you find that in any translation. But for those who said it doesn't refer to Walid ibn Mughira, but refers to the prototype of the human being, that it is a description for the way that human, the, the, the prototypical image of a human being, as they rely on their arrogance as a way of explaining things, they might, they might be initially struck by a semblance of the truth, a whiff of the truth. 
but then they pass. And the means of self-justification and explanation kick in. And arrogance is always core to the means of self-explanation and justification. And as they do, they, they you know, go through a, a period of, of pause, but instead of that pause producing a rekindling of the conscience and an awakening of the conscience, it produces the exact opposite. You know how many times in life people have, I've talked to people and they say, well, let me think about it. And they go think about it. And, you know, I always have that little hope that they're going to come back and say the right thing. But 90 times, 90 times out of 100, they come back and they're worse than before. Uh, to the point that in this point in my life, when someone tells me I'll think about it, I say, okay, they're gone. Forget it. I'm not even going to wait. I don't even bother. Um, think about it has become equal to me in this point in life to I'm just going to surrender to the worst of who I am. What time is it? You know, it seems like it's obvious that we're not going to get beyond the Muddathar today. We're not going to get in Muzammin. I want to shoot myself. It wasn't haram. I would have shot myself. Um, it's a good thing it's haram because I would have shot myself every time. I, I, I just, I, I, I want, I, you know, I, I want to cover the entire Quran before I leave this world. And I, I don't know how to... Uh, okay, let's let's take a three minute break and we'll come continue with the Mudassar. Okay. Summa Abasa wa Basar, Summa Adbara wa Stakbar. Fakala inna hadha illa sihru yuqsar, inna hadha kawlu al-Bashar, sauslihi sakar. Just again, whether it's these, this is up to 25, as we said, in, uh, whether this is a reference to Walid ibn Mughira, who's not named, but for instance, with Surat in, in Abu Lahab, we, he is named, um, that those who said that it's not a reference to in Walid ibn Mughira, but it prototype of the human being, that the, the resistance that hu human beings, in fact, most human beings will have to accepting that this Quran is God's revealed word. And then the only thing I want to note here quickly is that Sakar, um, uh, which in this context uh, means hellfire 
وما أدراك ما سقر لا تبقي ولا تظهر لواحة للبشر In Arabic we say سقرته الشمس If the if you get a, a, a sunburn in old Arabic you say سقرته الشمس So سقر as a a um, term for something that burns um, uh, has that, that linguistic usage. Um, So where it says 29, this tafsir says burning and blackening the skins. What do other tafsir say the same thing? Scorching the skin. Scorching the skin? Yeah. could mean scorching the skin. It could mean scorching and blackening the skin. But it also could mean that uh, here Bashar is is not skin, but to human beings themselves. And Lawaha means that it will, uh, how to put it, it's when you see something and you are in total awe of it, so you are unable to turn your gaze away, that's a Lawaha. So, although most translations that I know of say scorching the skins, but it is as plausible to say um, completely overtaking the attention of people or even terrifying people. Okay, these are just in, in the realm of various reports and uh, and and as I said, you know, it's not necessarily um, they're, they're not necessarily exclusive to each other. They're various meanings that we find. Uh, and uh, there is a, I think I'll leave it for a Muzammil, but there is a very nice quote um, about the how the layers of meaning in the Quran that inshallah I'll read to you but I think I'll leave it for a Muslim. Okay. So alayha Now here we have to pause. Most translation will say that this it has nineteen angels the 19 angels that are the guardians of hell. And the rest of the verses that come follow, it specifically says that the guardians over hellfire are angels. And that the number is a test to those who do not believe and 
for those who believe, they accept it without difficulty. But what is really fascinating is if, if you knew how much was written about this whole issue of 19, um, it's remarkable. Um, and whether 19 is a reference, especially that the Quran says that the, the, the reference to that number is a um, is a form of test to the resolve of people's convictions or people's belief. So I'm just going to tell you some of some of the material, and I'll share with you just one of the texts um, just to illustrate the point. But there is much more. So, 19 could mean 19 angels. And why 19 angels? Only Allah knows. However, in there is um, when you say the number 19, how do I explain? Okay. Uh, odd, odd numbers and even numbers. If you want to say an odd number and you want to say in Arabic an odd number that is not too little or too much, you say nine. It doesn't mean nine. It means it's an odd number of things that is neither a lot nor little. If you want to say an even number, that means not too little and not too much, you say 10. It doesn't mean that there's actually 10, but it is a topoi for not too little or not too much. And so, if you, several commentators said that when Allah said 19, that Allah is saying, although I'm not going to tell you the exact number of angels, but I am telling you that the number is neither too little nor too much because 19 is the number when you want to not be definite as to whether it's even or odds and you say that it is neither too little nor too much so basically it's an it's a considerable number not very few and not a lot of them so that's one and that you rarely hear here these days but there are um another very common one and you find this on tabari those there was an old the old belief that um, um, that nineteen was a magic number that had special properties because um, let me see if I can remember this they they believe that there are 
How many? Um, I'm sorry. Say, let's say that again. I, I can't hear. Um, in one of the commentaries, is a study Quran. Mm -hmm. It says that 19 mm -hmm. multiplied by 6 is 114, mm -hmm. which is the number of surahs. Yeah, no, that, that actually, I, I was going to do that. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, uh, okay, so let, let's maybe let's go to that first. So some said that, well, the number 19 is special because if you uh, multiply by 6, you have 14 surahs. And why the number 6? Uh, it, this is interesting. The, there was a, an old cosmological belief that sins are broken down to three main categories. Abandoning belief, correct belief. Abandoning correct uh, convictions or admissions. That, that you don't act correctly. So there are three types. And they further then believed that each of these, Tarkul Ikrar, Tarkul Amal, are divided into two main subcategories. And that's how you get the six. And then the six times 19, you get 114 surahs. Some said that, well, there's another thing about 19 is that if you spell out the letters of Bismillah Rahman Rahim, you get 19. Um, but it doesn't stop there, the, 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 what you read about the number 19. Some said, uh, how many, um, uh, uh, what do you call this, um, ho uh, horoscope, um, you know, yeah, how many? Huh? There's 12. Mm -hmm. 12, right? And then they believe that there were around uh, the sun, there were yeah seven uh, planets, so seven plus twelve is nineteen. So you get these ex explanations. Now some of the more um, um, mystical ones, and definitely um, maybe I can just. The, which talks about the senses, the, the external senses and the inner senses, which also come out to 19. So I'm going to just, for those of you who, especially those of you who know Arabic, just so you get a sense of how these dis discussions um, would go.
Um, this is verse uh, 30, right? Uh, so, I'm going to find this. Yeah, so he says, uh, <<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ahn><<<ah
the, the, your, your anger. Are you an angry human being? Um, I'm trying to remember um, the others. Um, well, he doesn't mention them, but anyway, um, another whether you have a a self that is constantly trying to hide the inas hajbiya that the, you you are not just shy, but no, it's not shyness. It's nearly dishonesty. You you are always in a state of dissimulation. You are not comfortable with truth. And so your sheikh, for instance, would try, would help you, would work with you to pin down your major weaknesses, your inner, inner weaknesses. And you would confront these weaknesses and struggle to cleanse them. And it was believed that your external senses cannot be healed unless your five inner senses would be healed and your five inner senses cannot be healed unless the proper balance is attained between your nine humors. So if you have one humor that is sharply imbalanced, you're going to be messed up. So the total of that is what? Nineteen. And so in Sufism, not all Sufism, but in, in particular orientations of Sufism, the number 19 is taken as symbolic for what sends people to hellfire. And they tell you that what sends people to hellfire is an imbalance. And when you say an imbalance in what? So if you were talking to a sheikh who's steeped in this knowledge, you'll say, an imbalance in your 19. And you'd say, Sheikh, how am I imbalanced in my 19? And that would be the beginning of your journey. And it is said that that is why they say that, you know, you to, to self-cleanse and to immerse, you need a Sheikh because it only a very good sheikh would be able to advise you on exactly the state of your 19. Um, not any... Now, of course, with the, the spread of... I mean, even modern Sufism, I've noticed that there is a, a brand of Sufism that has become... Um, Trendy, Sufism, cool Sufism, hipster, hipster Sufism maybe, yeah. <laughs> and cool Sufism, hipster Sufism, trendy Sufism has nothing to do with any of that. They, I mean, I've I've had conversations with people in these orientations, and they know nothing about this stuff. And one of the I'm I'm revealing one of the tests that I use. I say, do you can, what can you tell me, O Sheikh, O Master, about the nineteen? <laughs> And, you know, usually I get some BS answer, and then I know I'm talking to an idiot. Um, but unfortunately, I have to say that that has been my major experience in the U.S., is that 
or some some guy will remember sort of Modesto says, oh yes, there are 19 guards to hell, and then I still, I know that they have no idea what they're talking about. Um, okay. We could pause at 19 much longer what we can. Okay, so then when, when you have, Allah then says that this is a fitna. You could understand that, oh, Either the fitna is, well, why 19? Why not 20? Why not 21? Or the fitna is understanding the depth of the number 19. Now, here is, remember one of my books is titled, And God Knows the Soldiers. Taken from verse 31. That in in the, the the juristic works, they often tell you that it it literally means that only Allah knows the intentions, and you know a lot of people claim that they fight in the way of Allah or they struggle in the way of Allah, but only God knows what is inside. Okay, fine. Uh, but in the second layer of works, the that. It is only Allah that knows who truly has captured the secret of the 19. And that, and it is only, only with Allah's grace that you can master the secret of the 19 and purify, um, and so on. Okay. So, وَمَا هِيَ إِلَّا ذِكْرَ لِلْبَشَرِ and it is nothing but a reminder to human beings, what is Wamehiya? Is it Sakar? Is it Hellfire? Is it 19? Is it the Quran? Um, you can see why the answer to that would matter. Okay, then at this point, now notice the, the this is again, very early Quran, before Al-Fatiha, before we have prayer before we have all the, the the laws of Islam so it is taking you in a in a foundational journey it started out with this command to remove the veils and rise swift to either talking about Walid ibn Mughira or talking about the human prototype of the weak human who can't, who's having a hard time believing, uh, or both, and then at that point, it draws your attention to something that the Quran will do very frequently after that, and that is draw your attention to nature and the laws of nature and God's creation, and so wal qamar. Swearing by the moon, is and the night as it retreats was asfar. Asfar, by the way, when we say uh, sufur, sufur meaning to uh, often it's in, in law it, it refers to uh, someone. Uh, uh, a man or a woman who shows their hair, hair is a sefer. But 
um, or in modern Islam, sufur refers to women who don't wear hijab. Uh, but subhi is asfar means as it comes. But it comes from the same word, safara. Safara to reveal, to show. Okay, so you got to see how this person translated Verily it, uh, so it says, Verily it, hell or their denial of Prophet Muhammad is but one of the greatest signs. What do other translations say? 34, no, 35. It's one of the mightiest things. But what is one of the mightiest things? A warning to all mortals, to those of you who choose to go ahead and those who lag behind. Yeah, but does it say what, what, what like, does it say if it's hell or no. denying Muhammad or? Hell. So yours says hell? Yeah. yeah. Mighty catastrophe. You see, this, again, when we say what, what, um, um, paused, what, what caused our, our ancestors to pause, those who fell in love with the Qur'an and... Uh, now, why doesn't Allah tell us exactly what what it refers to? Is it hellfire? Is it the Islamic message? And... And the answer to that will come in their discussions on to those of you who wish to go forward or to retreat. Okay. So, of course, in the literal approach, is simple enough. Is that if you wish to go ahead to, to, to heaven or you fall in hellfire. And innaha uh, means that, you know, it, it is a mighty thing. What's the mighty thing? Whether you are going to go, decide to go to hell or go to heaven. The reason that this is significant is the, the how much it, um, how much reflection and, and richness it generated. So, there's a, a, a discussion around Surah Al-Muddasar, especially Al-Akhar, and a whole school of commentators, generations of commentators, that said the reference here is not just to whether you go to heaven or to hell. But it is to it, it is a reference to human beings either in a state of flourishing, state of a, a, a higher state or a lower state, if you will, civilizations. 
And Muslim theologians divided that state into three stages. They used to speak of Ahl Tabi'ah, Ahl Sharia, and Ahl Al Haqiqah. The people of Tabi'ah, the people of nature, the people of Sharia, and the people of Haqiqah, the people of truth. And the way they visualized it is that in state of nature, this is the, the, the first state that where human beings basically know only their needs and their desires and the few moral principles that they can reason through because from a utilitarian perspective, they learn that it is better to go this route instead of that route. So they say that in the state of Tabi'ah, in the state of nature, in the same way a child learns that if you touch the fire, it burns your finger, well, society learns that if you touch fire, it burns your finger. So society basically figures out things that help society move along, but society in general remains anchored in utilitarian logic. What makes me or I, whatever the I is, feel good. Al-Sharia is a further stage of development where society learns that the divine law is a step, a necessary step towards true virtue and understands how to embrace the divine law to attain virtue. And Ahl al-Haqiqah is the stage where people in fact attain the virtual society. In, now, most of them would say Ahl al-Haqiqah that it, it, is, it is not that they believe that it is achievable, but it is what you aspire for, and that you and it's a sliding scale. And so Yataqaddam al Akhar was was often discussed as what is a heavy message is this trajectory that begins with Islam in understanding that you are living, as we will see in a second, in an animalistic state. Now, listen to Muhammad to elevate yourself from your animalistic state to a higher state that aspires to the virtuous state. Do you see what I'm saying? Remember, uh, persevere in the path of your Lord, so don't give up on me. I'm noticing people looking tired and exhausted and so on. Persevere. Persevere in the path of the Lord. Smack yourself if you need to.
my my opinion is that if Muslims didn't understand their message from the very beginning, not only as a face for Jannah and hellfire or Jannah or, or, or heaven, but that it was a civilizational paradigm, Islam would have never created the civilization. And that's the significance of something like Yataqaddam or Yataakhar. And the very fascinating discussions we read about Yataqaddam or Yataakhar. Okay. And then the principle in, uh, sorry, in uh, the principle كُلُّ نَفْسٍ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ رَهِينَ which will become an anchor for the Islamic message. You are tied to what you've earned in this life. You are intimately interconnected with how you've performed in this life, which, as I've said before, was foreign for the Meccans, um, who often believed that liability or accountability could be collective and criminal responsibility could be collective, uh, uh, often moral responsibility could be collective, that families, for instance, and so on. And so it was, again, a paradigm, it's a reorientation towards a paradigm shift. Okay, and then the Quranic style, which will become much more, which we will see again and again in the Quran in later revelations, in which there is a fictitious conversation taking place between the people of Yamin, the people on the right path, right, not necessarily the right side, but just the right thing. And they are talking to the people who have gone, who've ended up in Sakar, in Hellfire. And they are saying, why are you in Hellfire? And the people who are in Hellfire say, well, we didn't be, we weren't among the Musallin. We didn't feed the poor. This is 45, which here is translated as, and we used to talk falsehood, all that which Allah hated was vain talkers. We'll come back to it. And we used to not believe in the hereafter until we found out the truth. What made you end up in hellfire? We weren't among those who prayed. Well, at the time Surat al-Muddassar is revealed, there is no five prayers. The five prayers in their final form, we know, don't take place until Isra or Mi'raj. So what is the prayer 
that Surah Al-Mudassir is referring to. وَلَمْ نُطْعِمُ الْمُسْكِينَ And we didn't feed the poor. Should they have known that they owe the poor something, even without the revelation? Because notice, it is mentioned right after gratitude or prayer. But before, we didn't believe in the hereafter. This was a major pause for Muslim theologians. This issue of should they have known in the state of Tabia, in the state of nature, do people have moral knowledge that they can't fill their stomach as the poor starve to death. And it is not an exaggeration to say that the literalists simply said, well, no, because there's no moral obligation without revelation. And the non-literalists, even those who didn't believe in anything like natural law, still said that your fitrah is enough of a warner to tell you that it cannot be acceptable for the maker who you owe gratitude to not to take care of the poor, which is fascinating. And again, you can, in Tafsir al-Matridi, there's a very nice discussion on that. Um, and Razi, of course, as usual, he t uses it as an opportunity to attack the Mu'tazila, but... Um, um, but the one I want to pa pause with, because this is significant. Well, it's all significant, but particularly significant. The expression is fascinating. Because doesn't just mean that we used to talk falsehood. But literally, it would mean that we used to literally something like that we would shatter on with the others. Like, we just followed. We, we would just follow the vanities without pausing and thinking. Now, why is this important? We'll see in a second why this is particularly important. Because it's like you were just part of the masses. You were part of the herd. It's like being a part of the herd. We didn't really take our morality, our consciousness, our state of being very seriously. And we just went on on the path of least resistance. And then, fourth, and we used to 
not believe in the hereafter. The, the order of these gave Muslim theologians very long pauses. Until certitude came to us, and certitude means until we were confronted with the undeniable reality, and that is final accountability. And at that point, no one can intercede for another, no one can excuse the faults of another. فَمَا لَهُمْ عَنِ التَّذْكِرَةِ مُعْرِدِينَ So how could it be that they turn away from this not and here عَنِ التَّذْكِرَةِ مُعْرِدِينَ nearly translated like how could it be that they turn away from this natural reminder to them? Like if you read it in the context of what comes before it It is as if people are going on cruise control, and on this cruise control, they are not grateful towards Allah. And here, because prayer is not yet decreed, you go back to, and Surah Al-Muzzammil fills in this, this part by telling us that the prayer at this stage was dhikr. That you are in a state in which you know you owe your divine maker what you owe. But that remembrance of the divine maker makes you conscious, socially conscious, makes you conscious of the rights of the poor, meaning the rights of others. And makes you resistant to social pressure. So you're not among the Kha'id Ma'al Kha'idin. And the part that Muslim theologians say needs revelation, interestingly, is to know about the hereafter the final day, that that requires revelation because it's not necessarily known by intuition. But look what then Surah Al-Muddassar tells us about the nature of people without the revelation. Which, by the way, for I mean, it's remarkable that in our modern age it doesn't detain us, it doesn't cause us any pause. But because in in, in the time Surah Al-Mudassir was revealed, it was a very big deal. كَأَنَّهُمْ حُمُرٌ مُسْتَنْفِرَةٌ فَرَّتْ مِنْ قَصْوَرَةٌ. So they are like what? Humurun Mustanfira are like donkeys or asses or mules. Mustanfira are donkeys or asses or mules in state of excitement and 
disturbance. Farrat min qaswara. Qaswara could mean fire. It could mean lion. And it's in the Abyssinian language, qaswara meant lion. And it could mean hunters. Because in the Arabized Abyssinian language, Qaswara meant hunters, and not just lion. But in all cases, Farrat min Qaswara, how are donkeys or asses or mules when they are in a state of panic? They run one side, from one side to another side aimlessly. They don't progress forward from one inferior state to a more superior state. They don't improve their condition. They don't, prove, they don't build fortresses to protect them from hunters or lions. They don't dig holes and go into underground for protection. They don't protect, build dams. They just run back and forth, back and forth. And that image was one of the, the imagery that captured the imagination of early Muslims and also offended the early Meccans. Are you saying with all our trade and our wealth and our society and every, everything we're living, you're saying we're just like donkeys or asses? So you're saying we'll just live aimlessly and pointlessly, don't you, you know? And these were the Meccans, I mean, the aristocracy of Mecca, very arrogant, proud people who felt that, of course, they had meaning. And so you're saying all of this is just a mirage and it's like we're just like mindless donkeys going around uh, reacting to meaningless or reacting meaninglessly to actual or imagined fears? As Jilani and Ibn Arabi point out, what is the heart of the problem? For those who are in a state living reactively to life without real meaning. Interestingly, they say that it is the verse that follows, 52. That each of them, means each of them wants a personal revelation or to be sent their own individual parchment. Meaning, 
by our modern language, when people say, well, I can't believe it unless I see it myself, or I don't know it unless I experience it, the ego, when it inflates, it refuses to defer to anything but itself. You guys want to walk the path? We, we starting with Surah Al-Muddathir. If your ego refuses to, de to defer to anything but itself, you are going to have a very hard time walking the path. Pray as you may, fast as you may, do whatever you do, but if your ego has a very hard time to deferring to anyone but itself, you are exactly like those who are demanding your own individual revelation. Effectively, you are dooming yourself, whether you're Muslim or not Muslim, to being like asses or donkeys, living reactively, but never meaningfully. Because I think Ibn Arab and Jilani both, and so many others have talked about it, that the, in direct proportion to the size of the ego, is the side is the space available within you for the divine the bigger your ego the smaller the space for God the smaller your ego the bigger the space for God and that is why when when I talked about the 19 the very first step in the journey in the spiritual journey that people take is for any murid is that they always start with the exercises that break down the ego and shrink it to a manageable side, size so that it can be in a state of receiving lessons. And many of these exercises, if you look at them, it will go back to the beginning of Surah Al-Muddathir Walatam Nunna Tastakthir. Don't you dare look to what you give or what you offer or what. Don't look to yourself as God's gift or to the whatever you do as, oh, I've given so much, I've done so much. That's a disqualifier. Of course, Sufis don't disqualify people um, like some of the others, like Sufis do. Okay, and then the close of Surah Al-Muddathir, verily this is a reminder, but always remember that it is a reminder to those who want to remember. And also, always remember that your will is always contingent on God's will. That, and again, a, a reminder to that to the ego issue. That 
your will is always subservient to the divine will. So if we go now take Surat al-Muddassar, among the very early, the, the, as we said, very beginning of the, the, the revelations, we know that al-Walid al-Muhira, I mean, one of the very interesting things is that, of course, um, we read reports that Al-Walid al-Muhira is told that, you know, Surat al-Muddassar is talking about you and that he is livid about that. And a lot of commentators point out that it's, isn't it interesting that if Abu Lahab uh, or Al-Walid al-Muhira wanted to to, to give a fatal blow to Islam, all they would have had to do is convert to Islam. And it would have been a fatal blow to the Quran. But isn't it interesting that the, Allah knew that they will not convert? So, um, but there is interesting thing about the these uh, the narratives about the Walid al-Muhira being told that Surat al-Muddathir refers to him is that they are um, not very reliable. And in fact, the reliable red narratives um, are interestingly silent about Al-Walid ibn Mughira and Surat al-Muddathir, that, that there's any reaction to Surat al-Muddathir. We do have a lot of reports that Surat al-Muddathir um, being followed slow, shortly after by Surat al-Muzammil in most reports, had a direct impact on the early converts to Islam. And it's fascinating because the direct impact is that they started joining the Prophet, supplicating, doing dhikr for half the night, two-thirds of the night. Often those who were servants and slaves and indentured workers would escape from their homes to so it it had a direct impact that when I talk about the Sunnah of the Prophet and I talk about studying the Sira and retelling the Sira, this is the type of things that we need to talk about because it's fascinating that they received this very early revelation. They weren't quite sure what Iqra meant. Even if, if, those who say that Iqra was uh, the first, the Surat al-Alaq. Uh, that took centuries to develop. But Surat al-Muddathir, they understood it as a challenge to cleansing the self and purifying the self. And the other very clear thing from the track record is that Mecca was outraged at the image that they are living their lives aimlessly like donkeys and asses. Which will come back when the, the Quran says that there are some people who are like donkeys carrying books. So it's not just a, a, a passive thing. And this, it was clear that Surat al-Muddassir, that Muhammad is bringing not here, not just, he's not really talking about idols at this point. This is not the first thing. 
But Muhammad is bringing a complete different philosophy of life. And it's going to be a clashing course. So in fact, after Surah Al-Muddathir, Muhammad's the persecution and hostility to Muhammad from the aristocracy of Mecca increases. So it's a remarkable moment in the birth of Islam or in the, the, the genesis of that. And it's something that we often pass over, you know, we don't educate our children about it and we don't tell them the full texture of this whole story of Surah Al-Muddathir with all its it's exciting, fascinating nuances. And alhamdulillah, of course, we didn't even come close to Surah Al-Muzammil, but alhamdulillah, at least we've done Surah Al-Muddathir, and I guess that's good enough for tonight.